people worship Zeus everywhere in the empire, but there was no kind of official Zeus worship anywhere. The worship of Zeus in Ephesus was very different from the worship of Zeus in Rome, it was mm. different from Alexandria. So, and they didn't try to coordinate it because they had no reason to. But the Christians insisted that you had to believe the right things or you won't be saved. Nobody, there, was, there were no religions that saw, thought that before Christianity. It was never about belief. But with Christianity, it's about believing that Christ is the son of God, that he was raised from the dead, and that, you know, you have these beliefs yeah. and you've got to get the right ones. So people then had arguments about which, which books were the inspired scriptures. Mm -hmm. And um, while they were having those arguments, they were arguing about what the right things to believe are. And different groups had more power than others. And eventually one of the groups took over and they're the ones who ended up deciding. I wonder what was it like To see a light so low in the sky To follow it blindly To see it shining so bright Did the stars know the light would show The way to the same Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and I've got one question for you. Are you ready for for today? Uh, this is episode number 155, and today we're sitting down with the one and the only Bart Ehrman. This is a highly anticipated episode. I have been leaking pieces of our conversation out. I've been teasing you with the topics that we cover and I'm about to I'm about to unfold it in front of you like a the beautiful buffet of of conversation that it is. We talk about a lot of stuff in this episode. Have you ever wondered is Bart Ehrman an atheist or an agnostic, and why? Uh, we talk about that. Uh, we also talk about the history, uh, early Christianity, so the diversity of early Christianity. We talk about the. Uh, the formation of the New Testament canon. Uh, we talk about the books that were left out of the New Testament. Talk about some church history stuff. We crack a couple jokes. Uh, he gives us some some really great wisdom and advice at the end of the episode. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about it quickly, but like when you have Bart Ehrman for 45 minutes, do you drill into one thing really deep or do you just ask him questions? And I just... I decided to just ask him questions, and I think that uh, I think that the the end result is, is going to be a huge benefit to you uh, and to me. Really, really good stuff uh, coming at you here in a couple minutes. Uh, special music today is by my friend Forrest Clay. Uh, if you don't know him, go look him up on Spotify, Apple Music, all the places. He's about to release a brand new album, and this is a special album, and it's special because. He's somebody who has, you know, deconstructed, reconstructed, whatever buzzword you want to use. Every song is kind of like a picture, a glimpse, um, based upon a specific piece of his journey. And the the album, every song will give you goosebumps. Um, every song will make you think. Every song will make you stop in your tracks and be like, whoa. Like this, this, this song is putting so many words on my feelings. And uh, just really, really special album. I don't know if you want to call it mystical, magical, whatever it is. Uh, it's awesome. So go look him up, Forrest Clay. Album hasn't released yet, uh, but the songs in this episode are off of that album. So head over there and uh, those places and check it out. Also in the show notes will be... Uh, a link to Patreon, buy me a coffee. If you want to support the show financially, you can do that there, uh, Patreon and buy me a coffee. And uh, also there's a link to the Heretic Shop if you want to buy some t-shirts, hoodies, things like that. And uh, lastly, something a little different this week, uh, there's a link to the video of this episode. So funny story, uh, I had approached Bart, let's see, one, two, two times, I think, to come on the show. 
and uh, both times he was not able to do it. And the third time, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like the, the person in the Bible who keeps keeps banging on the door <laughs> trying to get the answer that I want. I went to him a third time. I said, hey, Bart, it's me again. Do you want to maybe do an episode with me? And he's like, so I'll tell you what, I'll do the episode with you if I could put the video on my YouTube page. I mean, what do you say to that? What am I going to say? No, right? Of course. Yes, you can, you can do whatever you want with the video. I don't care. Put it on a rocket and send it to space, right? I don't really care. And so uh, we got the video. I did a little editing to it because I figured it's going to get seen uh, at least a few times. And so I wanted to spice it up a little bit. So I tried to do that, put some music in there, things like that, some of the cool transitions, uh, those different kind of things. So I'll put the link in the show notes if you'd rather watch this and listen to it. Uh, you can do that there on his YouTube page. Uh, also in there is a link to his blog, which you should definitely go and check out. Uh, it's a membership blog. You can They have a free level, but there's also paid levels, and he donates all the money to really good organizations. So really, really cool stuff. All the links in the show notes. That said, uh, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to be quiet because uh, you are anticipating this episode as much as I am. And so let me shut up, roll the tape, listen to a little Forrest Clay serenade you uh, as you roll into the episode with Bart Ehrman. Enjoy. Deconstructed these walls and I found a business Where the company line was the only way Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is the episode you have been waiting for because today we're talking to the legendary Bart Ehrman to chat about all sorts of exciting things. And so, Bart, my friend, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk to you. I, I hope I'm not legendary the way you know, like Moses is. <laughs> <laughs> You're up there. You're almost there. I mean, no, I mean, like you know, I really do exist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. You're very welcome. So uh, truth be told, I have a bazillion uh, questions for you. And I have a whole shelf of uh, Barterm and books that are highlighted, dog-eared, sticky notes, all the things. But uh, I'm going to do my best to keep my questions at least somewhat focused on your book, uh, Lost Christianities, because I really want to pick your brain about the diversity of our early Christianity. But before we get into all of that, for uh, our listeners who maybe aren't as obsessed with your work as I am, uh, talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do, a little bit of your journey. Uh, right. So I'm a professor uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. I um, I teach in the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, I've been here since I've teach, taught here since 1988. I started teaching at Rutgers in, in 1984. And so I've been I've been teaching uh, my courses, which are mainly on New Testament and early Christianity for uh, well over 30 years now. Um and so my, my expertise is on, um, my PhD is actually in New Testament studies, um, but I, a lot of my research these days is more on second and third century Christianity. Uh, and so I'm kind of, my expertise spans from Jesus up to the Emperor Constantine, basically. Mm. And I approach all of this from a historical point of view, not from a uh, religious point of view. So not a devotional point of view, but from more of a historical and literary point of view. Sure. So personal question for you. Um, how do you identify today in regards to faith? Because I, I hate labels, but I hear some people no, insist yeah. that you're an atheist. Some people insist you're agnostic. Your Twitter bio kind of throws us all for a loop and says agnostic atheist. So maybe clear <laughs> up some of the discrepancy. Uh, what are your some of your personal thoughts about the idea of God? Uh, no, so I, you know, I started out as a very strong evangelical Christian. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was a fundamentalist. I went to Moody Bible Institute after high school and I was like, I was really <laughs> as fundamentalist as you can get. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, 
but then, um, you know, I when I went to when I, when I went to graduate school and started studying this stuff pretty seriously, I I decided the Bible was not inerrant, <laughs> and uh, so I, I remained a Christian for a very long time. It was about 25 years ago or so, I don't know, uh, when I left Christianity uh, altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself a humanist uh, in positive terms because I'm a uh, I'm a big fan of the human race, <laughs> parts of it, <laughs> with the potential of it anyway. <laughs> and um, but in terms of the negatives, uh, I consider myself both an atheist and an agnostic. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- when I left the faith, I had the I had the view that almost everybody seems to have, which is that those are two degrees of the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. That you got so some people are uh, who who don't believe in God, but they're too wimpy to say so, <laughs> so they just call themselves agnostic to kind of cover their bases. <laughs> right. And people who are who are really arrogant who say, "I know there's no God, no, there ain't." And so, like you know, the, and and now I don't see it that way. I think agnosticism is a statement about what you know about mm-hmm. the world, and I. You know, if somebody were to ask me, do you know that there's not a superior being in charge of this whole thing? I said, no, how would I know? <laughs> I'm just I'm like everyone else. I'm just trying know. to make it through this life, right? <laughs> so, so, but if you ask me, do I believe that there's a superior God, like somebody who's in, like involved in this world? I say, no, absolutely not. I don't believe that. Yeah. So I think atheism is about belief and agnosticism is about knowledge. And I do mm-hmm. try to keep those two things distinct. That makes sense. Was that a gradual move for you? Was it like a... Did it happen like a, was it a quick decision for you? Was it something that happened over time? To, to leave the faith, you mean? Yeah, to like leave from evangelicalism to where oh, you are no, now? No, no, it's a very long process because gotcha. I, uh, I had, uh, as a, as a fundamentalist Christian, I was convinced that the Bible had no mistakes of any kind whatsoever. Yeah. And I could reconcile anything. There's people, people can if they want to. Right. And so I could do that. I was pretty good at that. Sure. But I finally got convinced that they're, they're actually, I just, you know, there are mistakes in the Bible. I, once mm-hmm. I realized that, I moved toward a more liberal form of Christianity, which I still thought the Bible was God speaking to people and mm-hmm. that Christ was still representative of God. And it wasn't really until, as I was saying, 25, it might have been 30 years ago, now, 25 years ago, where I said, um, you know, I just got to a point where I didn't believe that there's a God who's in control of this world. I mean, look around. I mean, really, uh, with all the suffering in this world, it's just unbelievable how much suffering there is. And I just thought, you know, it, you know, it's nice for me to say that God answers my prayers, you know, like, oh, I got the job, you know, or, oh, I got the parking space. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, God, thank you, God. You right, know, it's like right. you know, someone else just got killed in a car wreck and yeah. uh, let alone the eight children who just died of starvation yeah. minute after minute, uh, day after, for, you know, many many millennia sure. uh, so i just got you know i just don't believe it anymore so your book uh lost christianities uh right off the bat i'm going to tell you that in seminary uh, my seminary which was a, a very evangelical school certainly the more conservative side of theology uh your work was was outlawed right like it's off limits it's it's not acceptable <laughs> uh, i was told to stay away from it but once i began deconstructing uh like rethinking my faith kind of towards the end of my seminary career i went out and of course did everything they told me not to do and i started by buying a whole lot of your your books um and your textbooks which are very expensive but i found them cheap i found them i found them used which is helpful but yeah, as i make my way through your books uh what continues to fascinate me is the the diversity that seems to have existed within early Christianity, the beliefs, the theology, the different texts, and your work really magnifies that. Because for me, that's like a totally new idea. When I picked up your book and I saw lost Christianities, plural, I immediately thought to myself, wait a minute, like there's, there's more than one. I thought there's only one because I was brought up, you know, probably like you evangelical to think that, you know, Orthodox Christianity was handed to Jesus in the manger. He then gave it to the apostles, to the bishops, yeah. to the priests, to the pastors, and everybody else is wrong. And so yeah, maybe yeah. like, maybe you could kick off the discussion and talk to us about like the glaring problems with thinking about history in that context. And maybe a little bit about the diversity that existed back when this, when this all began. Yeah. So no, it's uh I know I, that's definitely what I thought too. <laughs> and in fact, it wasn't just that there was only one, you know, there was an Orthodox Christianity. The Orthodox Christianity was my Christianity. Right. <laughs> so like if you were, if you were Roman Catholic, sorry, you're not a Christian. You know? <laughs> Don't mess with Orthodox. my Christianity, right? Mormons. Oh my God. No, <laughs> you're not a Christian. What are you thinking? Yeah. And so, so like, you know, so it's, and I've known, I've known people who've said, uh, you cannot be saved unless you're baptized in my church, mm. not my denomination, my church. Yes, <laughs> like, right. Whoa, okay. <laughs> my so, building right here. <laughs> so the, um, 
So the reality is that Christianity today is remarkably diverse. Uh, you get Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses and Presbyterians, Episcopalians and Methodists. You get all this and, and they believe very different things and they have very different practices. And, uh, but part of the point of this book, Lost Christianities, is that the wide, the wide diversity today pales in comparison with what it was in the second and third centuries mm. before we had creeds you know or before you had like uh an organization of the church that was where you had leaders who were making sure everything was going the same way and you're like mm. and even when they had the leaders making sure they were going the same way they didn't go the same way but but at least they brought a lot of the, the uh, diversity under control mm. and so the book is about how you have these different groups of uh, early christians um all of whom thought that they were uh, true followers of Jesus, who thought that they had the truth, mm -hmm. um, who, had, who had writings by apostles that showed they had the truth. Mm -hmm. and, they were, and they were all at odds with each other. People claim, Christians and people calling themselves Christian who said all sorts of things that today most Christians would say, that ain't Christian. <laughs> you know, but you know, we had people saying that there were two gods, like, literally, that literally the Old Testament God was different from the New Testament God. Not just kind of like kind of different, but no, really a different God <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that the New Testament God was to save you from the Old Testament God or people who said that there were 36 gods or 365 mm -hmm. gods or people who would say uh, Christ was a, he was a he was a he was God on earth. So since he was God, he wasn't really human mm -hmm. or no, no, he was a human and he wasn't really God or just almost any doctrine you can think of. People had different views of often contradictory views, and they all claimed to be followers of Jesus. And so you say, well, why didn't they just read the New Testament and figure it out? <laughs> there <laughs> wasn't right there, a New black and white, right? <laughs> the New Testament emerged out of these conflicts. And so that's uh -huh. what my book is about, is how the New Testament emerged out of these conflicts so that people could say, yeah, this, this is what it means to be Christian. So if there's all these different branches, all these different camps in early Christianity, how did the Orthodox camp become the strongest one? Because even like for myself, I mean, when I started to go to start exploring things. I got some messages like in my Facebook messenger from concerned, you know, professors and fellow students that, you know, you're straying from Orthodox Christianity was the big, was the big word that was thrown at me. So like, how did that become so strong? And then yeah. all these other ones got pushed to the side. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a long story and it's, it's a, it's a complicated story. Mm -hmm. um, but the, so the deal is you in, let, let me put like, so, the view that you outlined that, you know, Jesus got this in the cradle and, uh, you know, passed it on to his disciples and passed it down to the leaders of the churches. That view um, has has been prominent for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. It was it was most effectively uh, set forth by the father of church history, Eusebius, mm -hmm. in the early fourth century, who wrote a 10 volume book called The History of the Church or sometimes called The Ecclesiastical History where he explained that, yeah, he explained, look, Christianity's always been one thing. Jesus held it, apostles held it, the leaders of the churches held it. Every now and then, some person would come along and mess it up. You know, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be arrogant, or they'd be sinful, or they'd be inspired by the devil, and they'd come up with some crazy idea. <laughs> and they'd get a bunch of followers, and they'd say they were the original form. But in fact, they were always an offshoot. They were a minor offshoot. And so orthodoxy was understood always to be by Eusebius to be primary is first mm. and it was always the majority view so that when Eusebius talks about these various heretical groups mm -hmm. the heretics are always secondary and uh, corruptors of the truth secondary corruptors of the truth and so the idea is you got this big thing orthodoxy goes all the way back then you get these offshoots every now and then they're they're pestiferous and sometimes a pain in the neck but you know <laughs> they're just they're not really christian and so uh eusebius wrote that and after that just about everybody agreed yeah that's how it happened and mm -hmm. so it, it was that way until the early 20th century when um scholars started realizing that in fact Every time you discover a new document from early Christianity, like a, a, a document that claims to be a Christian document, mm. it has views that are not what you find in Orthodox Christianity. Mm. And it isn't just like one or two. It's like every time you find one of these documents, it's something else. <laughs> right. it's like, well, why, why aren't you finding things that are like, I mean, and so people, they came to the view that, in fact, in different parts of the Roman Empire, where you had mm. Christianity in different parts, you had different kinds of Christianity in the second mm. and third century. Uh, and so now scholars, of course, trace it back to the first century, the diversity. 
to the time of the New Testament. And so that's the view now is that you have, so you have all these things. And so your question, sorry about that. That's the no. background. Right. So, sure. Right. So, it needs so background. Question, it's a big question. <laughs> so the question is, well, how did orthodoxy succeed? Yeah. And why, why this one? So mm -hmm. the, the person, if you're, you know, if people listening to this are interested, the, 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 um, the book that really made the big difference was written in 1934 by a guy named Walter Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, and it was called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity. Um, and he, he showed this. He showed that in Antioch, he was a different kind of Christianity than the Egypt, as far back as you can trace. And Asia Minor had different kinds of Christianity. Rome had different, and, and he showed this. Um, uh, and he argued that the form of Christianity that ended up succeeding in establishing itself as orthodox, meaning that it had the right view, orthodoxy literally means the right view. Uh, he argued that the uh, group that did that, that, uh, that had the right view was the group located in Rome. Uh, Rome was the largest church uh, in the empire, it was the largest city in the empire. It also had the largest church in the empire. They had more money than any other church. They had administrative know-how that had been trickled down from the administration to Rome. And so, and they began asserting their influence already in the first century. And they used their money and their know-how and their influence to spread their form of Christianity, make sure the right bishop was elected, mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that the bishop had the right views. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you're choosing justices for the Supreme Court, right? right. You, you choose the one who's got your views because that's right. the right view. And then, then you do that enough and pretty soon you got the Supreme Court. Right, pack it. <laughs> pack it. Yep. So they, pack, they pack the church. <laughs> yeah. Can you then talk to us about like where, where does the term like Gnostic fit into all of that like how big how big was that in the arena that we're talking about because as i've been reading like i've been reading your stuff elaine pagels karen king david brackey like everybody seems to talk about the gnostics and gnosticism in a different way like some people seem to say it was a big camp and underneath were like different branches other people say yeah. it was a small branch amongst other smaller branches I think yeah. it's maybe Karen King who says just get rid of the term Gnostic altogether. Somebody's saying yeah. that. So like maybe help us have a little bit of clarity around where that discussion fits yeah, in. Yeah, right. No, it's, it, it's a complicated business. Yeah. So um, the term the term Gnostic um, literally is means somebody who knows. Mm -hmm. So it comes from the same word agnostic comes from. And agnostic doesn't know. And agnostic does know. <laughs> and so there were a uh, there were a group of religions that emphasized the importance of secret knowledge for salvation. Mm -hmm. Um, some, some of these groups are not even Christian groups. They, they, Jesus doesn't figure into them, but a lot of them, the ones we know about, most of them are Christian where Jesus Christ is the one who reveals this secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge in most of these systems tends to be uh, knowledge that can help you understand um, yourself. As one church father put it, you're, it's knowledge about who you are, where you came from, how you got here and how you can return. And so the idea is that some of us, um, some of us have a spark of divinity within us and it's trapped here in this world of matter. Uh, and the goal of existence is to, to allow the spark within us to escape our bodily entrapment. The, uh, and the, uh, a person can do that when they figure out that they really are a spark within how they got into the side of them and how they can get out of here. Mm. Um, Christ is the one who reveals the knowledge. These Gnostic groups, in order to explain how it happened, come up with a large set of myths uh, that are describing how the world came into, how the divine realm came into existence, how, how you know, originally there's like one divine being, but, they, but there, it has emanations that come off of them and then they become their own divine beings. And they have a bunch of divine beings and, and this world is a catastrophe because it's mm. created by, by an evil divine being and not by the God of, you know, not the, the good God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is actually an evil divinity or, a, or an ignorant divinity. And so all these myths, the different groups, these different Gnostic groups have different myths. And they have uh, different numbers of gods and they have different understandings of things. And so that's the debate you're referring to mm. is that you've got this wide range of things. And so Gnosticism today tends to get used as this umbrella term for a lot of these groups. But some scholars think the umbrella is too big to do any good. <laughs> I mean, a big umbrella is nice, but if, if it's a city block, you can't hold it up. Right. So it's not going to do you any good. Right. And so get rid of the umbrella. And so um, 
And other scholars say, no, what we need to do is we're going to pick like one of these groups that is really like hardcore, exactly what I'm talking about. That's the group we'll call Gnostic and we'll call other things, these other groups other things. Hmm. Or you know, so, so there's a lot of debates about that, but there's not much debate about the fact that you have these groups that emphasize uh, the importance of knowledge for salvation and that hmm. they involve these mythologies. Hmm. Now, when you talk about how they believe there was the the spark, I think you said there was a spark inside of some people. Did they believe that like everybody had that spark and that everybody had forgotten it and the people who received the knowledge would be the ones who awakened? Or was it only some people had that divine spark? So different groups, different Gnostic groups had different views about this, as as with most things. Um, shocker. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, it's a shock. Yeah. The one, the, uh, one of the, the more more important Christian Gnostic groups thought that there are three kinds of human being. There are some uh, there are some human beings who are just pure animal. There's nothing inside, um, like my next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> we all have we all have this. There ain't, there ain't anything there. <laughs> There are other people who don't have a spark inside, but they have, they have faith and they do good works. And when they die, they will be given some modicum of an a good, a good afterlife. But there are other people who have the spark within. And the spark, those who have the spark within are the Gnostics, the one who have the capability of knowing. And so being able to learn the truth isn't just a matter of smarts. It's a matter, it's really kind of like a predestination idea. The idea that, you know, you even got the spirit or you don't. You got the spark or you don't. Yeah. And those people are the ones who can come to the truth. And that's why these are secret teachings, because the teachings are for those who are capable of understanding them. Mm -hmm. And so if you object to these teachings, uh, it's because you don't understand them, which means you don't have a spark within, mm -hmm. which means there's no way to argue with these people. Mm -hmm. Because if you disagree with them, you, you're not Gnostic. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. So then those people were not able to obtain salvation then? Not point. ultimate salvation, but they could have faith in good works. And so, okay. so in other words, regular church folk, Christian church folk, mm -hmm. they'd be okay in the afterlife. They'd have a good afterlife. Uh, but for, for this one group, for this one group of, of Gnostics. But other people are just destroyed. Like, you know, you, squat that mos you swatted that mosquito yesterday and the mosquito <laughs> didn't have an afterlife. It's just dead. Right, you it's know? just gone. And so they, it's like my next door neighbor. <laughs> That's it. Sorry. <laughs> That's it. That's the end. So let's talk about a little bit about the, uh, the, the scriptures. I want to ask you in a moment about the Gnostic text, but before we get there, a little bit about the Bible that, that we have again, like you probably, I was taught that the, you know, the Protestant Bible is the authoritative word of God. You know, it's infallible. It's inerrant, all these things. And in my journey of discovery, like you said earlier, like I discovered that the Bible wasn't just dropped out of the clouds, didn't just come from the hand of God, but it went through this very complicated process of a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions, power, politics, all the different things. So can you maybe give us like a, I'm wondering like a bird's eye view of how exactly the Protestant Bible that we have came to be, yeah. maybe some things about the process that like the average listener who grew up like you and I did, maybe wouldn't fully yeah, grasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can do that. You know, really, the, the book Lost Christianities started mm -hmm. out being a book about how we got the canon of scripture. That's how it kind of started. That's, that was my idea. But then I thought, no, I got to tell the story about all these Christianities. <laughs> right. Because the reason we have, the New Testament we have, is precisely because of these battles over the mm -hmm. what would be true Christianity. And so, um, so, in the first century, so say the first 70 or 90 years after Jesus' death, there were obviously, most people couldn't read or write, but some could, and um, Christ, some Christians could, and Christians wrote books. I mean, they wrote, you know, we have the New Testament has 27 books in it, but there were other books written by Christians at the time. And um, because Christianity was being spread throughout the Roman world, there, there wasn't, there's no mass communication. There's no way really to, like... There, I mean, if you've got some views that have developed in the city of Ephesus and somebody's off in Rome, they're probably developing different views and you'll never even communicate with them. You know, or you, you might some visitor might come from Antioch and say, oh, my God, that's not what we think. You know, but so people in these different places are writing stuff and they're hearing stories about Jesus. They're writing accounts of Jesus and they're writing uh, books telling people how to behave and if they're going to be a Christian and what it means to be a Christian. And you know, how do you become? I mean, and they all have the, all these different views. So at first. That was okay because nobody knew that you have all these books out there. They just got the ones in their community. You know, they live in Antioch. Well, these are the books. And so, but 
as, as Christianity grows, crap, people are traveling and the books will be moved around and you start realizing, wait a second, mm -hmm. this is very different. And so it comes to a point where Christians, uh, I mean, Christians from the beginning thought that the, the Jewish Bible was their Bible. Mm -hmm. They had a Bible to start with. They had the, however they defined the Jewish Bible. But they started thinking, you know, there are these, these different views of things and we need authorities for knowing what the right thing is because you just can't pick something. You got to have an authority. And these books then started appearing that had the names of apostles on them because the, the disciples of Jesus and Paul, uh, who later converted, those would be the authorities. And so you start getting all these gospels, for example, and you get a gospel, you get a gospel about uh, of Jesus saying by written, allegedly written by Thomas um, or uh, his, his brother Thomas, actually, uh, and then a gospel about Jesus as a young boy, also by Thomas, mm -hmm. and a, a gospel by Philip, and a gospel by James, Jesus' brother, and a gospel by, I mean, you start going, you've know, you got a gospel of Peter, you got a gospel of Mary, you get the, these gospels, and people are saying, well, look, these are all saying different things, what are we, and so, um, and so people had to decide what the authorities were going to be, mm -hmm. um, and in different parts of the church, there would be different authorities, um, as the church grew and uh, it, it began to realize it had to kind of, it had to more or less centralize, it had to centralize. It had to be, it couldn't be 5,000 things. It had to be a thing. And, um, and so unlike, unlike all the other religions in the ancient world, uh, including Judaism, Christianity developed the idea that it was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, so there were other religions, I mean, there, like people worship Zeus everywhere in the empire. But there was no kind of official Zeus worship anywhere. The worship of Zeus in Ephesus was very different from the worship of, Ju of Zeus in Rome, it was mm. different from Alexandria. So, and they didn't try to coordinate it because they had no reason to. Mm. But the Christians insisted that you had to believe the right things or you won't be saved. Nobody, there, was, there were no religions that saw, thought that before Christianity. Mm. It was never about belief. But with Christianity... It's about believing that Christ is the son of God, that he was raised from the dead and that, you know, you have these beliefs yeah. and you've got to get the right ones. So people then had arguments about which which books were the inspired scriptures. Mm -hmm. And um, while they were having those arguments, they were arguing about what the right things to believe are. And different groups had more power than others. And eventually one of the groups took over and they're the ones who ended up deciding. So just quickly on, in terms of a timeline. The first, um, the first instance that we have anybody who lists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four Gospels is a church father named Irenaeus, who's writing in the year 185. So it's 100 years mm, yeah. after these things were in circulation. Mm. And even then, you know, there are lots of other people who disagreed with them. Uh, the first time anyone came up with our list of 27 books, mm -hmm. the first time on record, uh, is, is in the writings of a church father named Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, is a letter that he wrote to his churches under his jurisdiction in the year 367. Wow. <laughs> That's the first time <laughs> anybody listened to our books, <laughs> the books that we, because before that there were lists, but sometimes they leave things off, they add things in, and no, no, these are yeah. the 27. Mm. And even then it wasn't decided, but pretty soon is, there never was, by the way, there never was a church council that voted on it. Hmm. Um, some people hmm. think it was decided at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. No, they didn't even talk about it there. Hmm. Um, uh, and it wasn't decided in any kind of worldwide church council. The first time the worldwide council decide, talked about which books were definitely scripture was in the 16th century. Wow. <laughs> the Council of Trent. <laughs> yeah. That's not at all what I was taught. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what we were taught. No, not even so a little bit. It's in the history books. I can tell you, it's, I'm not making this one up. <laughs> yeah. So then how then, how did, like, you think of the Gospel of Thomas, you mentioned that, right? And there's yeah. all, others out there, that's not really a Gnostic text, so to speak, but uh, some say it is, but I don't know what you think. But like, what about like a text like that, even ones that aren't like super far out there, because there are some Gnostic texts that are really crazy, like you had said, but like what, what made that like those books unacceptable to be included in, in the canon? Like, why were those demonized, so to speak? So when the um, when the group that became Orthodox mm -hmm. was making its decision, so I in my writings I probably do this in Lost Christianities. I, I call the group that became later became the the right belief. I call them proto Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So Orthodoxy isn't like the only thing in town now, but it's like there's a group that believes it and holds to it. Mm -hmm. The proto Orthodox 
when they were deciding which books are going to be in. You know, is it going to be give me the Gospel of John? How about the Gospel of Thomas? How about Peter? You know, they're deciding. They basically they don't ever articulate it quite like this, but basically they've got four criteria they're looking at. And when you see their discussions, it's pretty clear. These are the four things that matter to them. A book had to be old um, by their standards. It, it had to be ancient. It couldn't be some, even if somebody wrote a really good gospel last week. I mean, you know, even, even Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. No, I'm sorry. It's not going to get in. It's not going to be there. It's got to be, it's got to So it's got to be go all the way back. Yeah. Um, it has to be written by, it has to be apostolically uh, authorized. So it has mm -hmm. to be written by one of Jesus' own apostles or by somebody commissioned by one of Jesus' apostles. Mm -hmm. So Matthew and John, they're disciples, they're in. Mark is Peter's buddy, Luke is Paul's buddy, they're in. And so, so they've got to be written by apostles. So they got to be ancient, they got to be apostolic. They, they have to be, um, scholars would call it Catholic, not in the sense of Roman Catholic, but the term Catholic means universal. That what I mean by that is that they get used everywhere in Orthodox Christianity. So they're not just a local favor. They've got to have widespread approbation. And fourth, and I think most importantly, they've got to be Orthodox. They've got to toe the theological line. And if they're teaching things that we don't agree with, then it's obviously it's not scripture. Right. And that was actually a criterion for deciding whether an apostle wrote it. Mm. If, if a book disagrees with my theology, then obviously it was not written by an apostle. And so a book like the Gospel of Peter was excluded because Peter could not have written this. That gets a little hairy then for the like the second one you talked about it being written by an apostle with like the letters, some of the letters attributed to Paul, right? Because yeah. like they're, I mean, for a while, I guess it was assumed that they were written by Paul, but now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of more serious scholars would say like first and second Timothy, for instance, is probably not written by him, even though it has his name on it. Yeah. So I, uh, a later book, I, I deal with that a little bit in lost Christianity. A later book I wrote was called forged. Mm -hmm. And it's about, it's about that phenomenon about people writing books. Uh, for, it's mainly about early Christian books, writing books, claiming to be Peter when you're not Peter, right. <laughs> you write a gospel and claim to be Peter. You're not Peter. And so what I argue, my book actually is contrary to what, a lot of people, a lot of people think, a lot of people think that that was an acceptable practice in the ancient world, and there weren't copyright laws, you know, and it wasn't illegal, and so people, they didn't have no problem with doing that. And uh, my, like, if I went and wrote a book, I said I'm Bart Ehrman, and I'm writing this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, people say, oh, look, there's no copyright, so if you want to claim to be Paul, that's fine. Right. You're just right. saying that you represent Paul's views. That's okay. Yeah. Well, what about somebody else who represents the opposite views and writes a book claiming to be Paul? You know, mm. do they think that's all right? Right. right. Uh, so in my book, I actually I went through, I wrote a very big book uh, mm -hmm. about this, a scholarly book that I'm not recommending to anybody. It's over <laughs> 600 pages where I where I uh, where I show that actually in the ancient world it was not that way. They obviously didn't call these things forgeries because they weren't speaking in English, <laughs> but the the Greek words they used for these words were. It's pretty nasty. They they call books like that. Um, they call lies, uh, pseudo, mm -hmm. or uh, or they call them um, yeah, well, uh, bastards mm. with with the connotation of bastard, illegitimate children with yeah. the negative connotation because they're not mm. they don't really belong to the beloved's parent. Yeah. And so so they said nasty things and and nobody approved of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, yeah, but you get that in the New Testament. It's the issue. Yeah. Um, so you get six letters of Paul that scholars have long thought probably six of the 13 probably mm -hmm. were not written by Paul. Uh, first and second Timothy, as you mentioned, be among, but but all other books in the New Testament, first and second Peter, almost certainly they weren't written by Peter. And mm -hmm. so my book tries to tries to show that. So it was a it was a phenomenon, not just among the Gnostics, and not, but also among the Proto-Orthodox. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that was a huge thing for me, because once I realized that, like a lot of the things that I thought Paul said, you know, that were so important once I realized that, oh, maybe Paul didn't say it, but maybe even one of his followers did, but maybe they were trying to, you know, lessen some of this stuff that Paul had said about like the inclusivity of, you know, God's kingdom and things like that. Like maybe it just, it just changed everything for me. Once I realized that Paul didn't necessarily say all these things about women, all these things. about well, No, it's a know, big deal. I mean, yeah. with the women thing, I mean, the, the idea that women have to be silent and be submissive to their husbands and don't ask at home, don't talk in church. Right. That's first Timothy, which Paul didn't write. <laughs> yeah, right. The change changes the game. So last question for you. Um, a lot of our listeners came out of the same uh, background as we did. Uh, many have commented um, on your, on your work and have talked about how it's like a rabbit hole of information and it can just feel very 
uh, overwhelming, I think, once you realize how kind of narrow of a view you were given of church history and Christianity and the Bible, things like that. So my question is, what advice do you have for the person out there who really wants to dig into this stuff? They have a whole bunch of sources kind of at their fingertips, but don't really know exactly where to start. What's your advice for that person? Um, is this person I'm uh, thinking of now, is this somebody who's still uh, a person of faith or is this somebody who's left the faith or is it both? Um, maybe, yeah, I would say they're still in the faith, like our listeners. So there are a lot of them yeah. are still, they're hanging on to their faith. Um, yeah. They're not yeah. sure what they believe, but they realize yeah. that I was handed something that's not really true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, well, I have a lot of advice because I thought about this for a long time. But one, one thing I'd say is um, pe- people, people should follow the truth wherever it leads them. Hmm. And you should not be afraid of the truth. I mean, when I was doing this, when I was going through this transition, it was a very long, painful transition. It was, for me, it was emotionally very painful uh, because my whole life was wrapped up in my faith and um, my relationships and my ideas and my thoughts and my ideology, my worldview is all like, is all like wrapped up. And so like to give, to leave, it was like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? Yeah. Um, and so, but my, but I was comforted by a thought that, um, uh, I, I don't know if it goes back to Augustine, but Augustine says it at some point that, that if something is true, it comes from God. Yeah. I mean, all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. And so like, if, if you believe something that's true, you're not opposing God here <laughs> I mean, because it's true. Right. And so the thing is to search for the truth. Mm. Um, but I would say that you shouldn't, uh, that I don't think anybody I'll put it like this. You know, I teach a class on the New Testament and I teach this kind of stuff in my New Testament class. And most of my students are church people, grew up in the conservative churches in the South. And so, but like, I do not want them to like dump their faith after like a semester hearing some guy talk. And this is a big issue. You know, like if I can persuade you by talking for a semester, I mean, you you know, you aren't thinking very much. You need to think about this. don't don't go too easily because you know, that's not good either. And so um, I I really suggest that people uh, dig into it and look at both sides of every issue and consider the evidence and see see what seems to be the most persuasive. Mm. Um, it's really difficult now. In in some ways, the internet has made it far more difficult because of course anybody can say anything on the internet, and so anybody seems to be an expert. Mm. And so how do you know? Like, how do you know? I mean, you know, I have this problem with all sorts of areas that I'm not an expert in. I want to become an expert. In, I want to learn about something. But how who do I trust? Right. And, um, you know, and so could you read all sorts of stuff? And so, um, you know, basically what I I think is that you, the value of printed books with reputable publishers mm-hmm. uh, is that the books get vetted by experts, mm-hmm. unlike things you find on the Internet. Yeah. Um, and so being vetted by an expert is a really important thing. And so like if I'm looking for some idea about the Civil War or if I'm looking about some idea about Julius Caesar, or if I'm looking for, you know, I really I really do kind of trust books that are published by reputable presses, not not, you know, personally published, but like by Oxford Press, you know, or by mm-hmm. Yale University, you know, because I know they've done their due diligence. Mm-hmm. When it comes to New Testament, early Christianity stuff, there are some authors that I absolutely, you know, even ones I disagree with but they absolutely are learned scholars and mm-hmm. they ought to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but I know it's hard, you know, unless you've got an expert, you can ask, can I trust this person? <laughs> you know, right. yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something can tell you. Uh, <laughs> so um, in my books, in my, you mentioned my textbooks mm-hmm. um, at the end of each chapter of my textbook, I have a list of books that are on that topic mm-hmm. and I don't always pick books that agree with me. But it's a, it's an annotated list. So if somebody's interested in the historical Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, I give a list of books by reputable scholars. Some I nobody that you know I don't I don't put fundamentalists on there, but I do sometimes put evangelical scholars who are very bright and have views different from mine. But that way, you know, but you got to have some reputable source to tell you what to read. I think. Yeah, I think that's wise advice because I think taking it to Google, like to your point, just it just brings up so much stuff and you don't know. That's where the rabbit hole, I think, really begins because it's like, oh, my goodness, there's so many things that I just got bombarded with. Where do I go? So I think well, to your you point, know, I, mean, I think starting with a with a book, with a reputable publishing house yeah. is a, a wise thing. You know, the the problem really is most obviously springs at the two extremes within the research into early Christianity. On the one hand, are fundamentalists 
who just, you know, they'll read some fundamentalist website that'll just be using apologetics that is actually, you know, like, this is not a smart argument. I'm sorry, this is not a smart <laughs> argument. And if you don't know, if you don't know enough, you just wouldn't realize any more than I would realize that, a, you know, somebody saying something about quantum physics isn't a smart argument. How would I know? I don't know. <laughs> But the other end are the mythicists. I don't know if you all talk about the mythicists on your podcast. But Not too much. Yeah. You know, there's this group of there's a group of people that are very loud on the internet saying that Jesus never existed. Mm. So they're called mythicists because they think Jesus himself is a myth. There never was a man Jesus. Mm. And oh my God, do they have an internet presence? And you know, and they convince people because people just don't know enough. Yeah. I mean, how could they know enough? Yeah. You know, but but you get somebody who claims to be an expert and he starts talking about the Egyptian religion and he starts talking about this God and that God. Fancy stuff. Yeah. So oh, my God, Mithras. You mean the God Mithras was born on December 25th and that his mother was a virgin and that he had wise men visiting him and that, you know, he's like, going, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Of course you didn't know. That. It's not true. Right. <laughs> I think I read one of those books a while back. I forget the name of it. But I, when I was reading, I was like, this doesn't sound this doesn't sound very reputable. I forget the name of what the book was. Uh I can't well, I, you, I wrote I wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? Because yes. I got fed up with these mythicists. Right. Oh my God. These, the these are very, very liberal people who yeah. are all over me because, like, you know, they thought I was their friend. <laughs> now I'm saying Jesus exists. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Throw him out. The heretic. <laughs> well, Bart, hey, this has been amazing, but uh, we're just about out of time. I know you got to get on with your day. I got to clock back in from work pretty soon. But thank you again for taking the time to join me. And uh, thank yep. you for your work. It's made a in, in big impact on my thinking. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. You're welcome. And real quick, uh, where's the best place for people to go to connect with your work? I know you've got a blog. You might want to mention that here. I do want to mention it. So I have a, so if you're interested in this kind of stuff, anything really, anything related to the New Testament or early Christianity for 400 years, I have a blog. Mm -hmm. It's called the Bart Ehrman blog. Just look it up. E-H-R-M-A-N, the Bart Ehrman blog. I post five times a week, 1,200 to 1,400 words a day, five times a week. I've done it for nine years every week. And it, people ask me questions. I answer every question I get. Uh, I do this as a way to raise money for charity. Uh, there's a small membership fee. If if, pe if people can't afford the membership fee, I'll you know I'll give them a free membership. But but there, so um, there's a membership fee. But if you go to the blog, you'll see uh, you'll see how it works. And uh, the goal of this is to uh, raise money for. Uh, people in need especially the hunger uh issues dealing with hunger and homelessness it's really good i mean i i'm on that blog and uh there's a is a wealth of information so very good stuff well bar i'll put all that stuff in the show notes uh thanks again for taking time okay thanks a lot appreciate it all right does god have a face does he have a body or
Must look. 